0: Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's podcast, we are very pleased and honored to have with us Tremaine Lee, uh, who is a journalist, MSNBC correspondent, the podcast host of Into America, Uh, He's been part of the 1619 Project. That's a Pulitzer Prize winning project. Uh, He's a Pulitzer Prize and Emmy Award winning journalist um, who's covered uh, race and democracy and politics and social movements for uh, The New York Times, The Huffington Post, uh, a wide variety of outlets, and now is a national MSNBC correspondent and host of the very popular and important podcast, Into America. Uh, And... In 2020, he launched The Race Report, a special MSNBC series that explores the intersection between race and politics this election season. So, Tremaine Lee, brother Tremaine Lee, welcome to Race and Democracy. Good, brother. Thank you for having me, man. The pleasure is, is absolutely mine. I want to get right into it because really, uh, yesterday we had the funeral of uh uh, Congressman John Lewis, one of the civil rights heroes and icons of the 20th century, um, in addition to President Obama's extraordinary eulogy, we had uh, some long marchers and veterans like uh, the Reverend Jim Lawson give a rousing uh, eulogy, and we had these different Black women and men speakers from the movement give such great tributes to John Lewis. I want to just start by uh, asking about what do you, what do you think of John Lewis's legacy? Uh, right now in this year, 2020, which has been such a watershed historical year?
1: Yeah, man, it's been said before, um, but when I think of John Lewis, I think a mountain of a man and that we actually shared uh, time and space on this earth with a man like John Lewis. Uh, But it's also a reminder that, you know, there are these giants that walk among us now that I think we take for granted. Think about Diane Nash, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, right? So many others who... Um, we could be going to for consultation, for advice, for wisdom. We should be giving them you know, all of the flowers for the way they've helped um, elevate America, which so, has so often disappointed us, right? Um, and that's probably an, an understatement. Uh, but men and women who really pushed um, to, to make America uh, live up to what it said it always was. And I think in this moment of racial reckoning in 2020, where for the first time, many Americans are grappling uh, with the nature of racism, the system that bind us from cradle to grave, right? Um, are, are, are seeing a bit of um, you know, the, the, the brutality and violence that police and law enforcement often heap upon our communities. They're seeing it, but now they're also feeling it, right? Because we see this kind of cross-racial, cross-cultural coalition forming around the idea of, of Black life um, and the value of Black life following George Floyd's death. Um, and it's it's wild to me that John Lewis died in this moment, the ongoing struggle for voting rights. Um, but then sadly, because of COVID-19, I don't think we can fully celebrate um, the life of John Lewis and mourn his death the way that I think we would another time. So
0: 2020 is, it's a wild one, man. What did you think of President Obama's eulogy? Especially he talked about a voting rights act to be named for John Lewis that would end voter suppression. Uh, he compared... Uh, The current president's policies, sending in federal agents to suppress political rebellion in Portland to George Wallace, the white supremacist and racial segregationist. In a way, we saw President Barack Obama, former President Barack Obama, Black America's forever president, um, unleashed and unbound on race um, during that 40 minute eulogy. What did you what did you make of that?
1: You know, first of all, it, it is always—and this is a, a nonpartisan statement—it um, is always refreshing to see President Obama and to hear his voice, especially the the stark contradiction between the president we have in the White House now and and President Obama, right? And I think in his remarks he drew that kind of stark divide between uh, the America of now, the America of President Trump, uh, that in so many ways has embodied uh, the, the the fervor of George Wallace and the the America of John Lewis and the America that John Lewis fought for and bled for and was attacked for, um, and at every turn he actually believed in in that America could be better than what it is um and I think that was just striking the the idea that he drew a clear line between the spirit of George Wallace and the current inhabitant of the White House and what we see happening now um I think it was. Uh, the, the the words and the framing that a lot of folks need right now, um, especially heading into this um, high stakes, very important election saying like, which America do you want to live in? Right. And as we lay John Lewis to rest, the one that he fought for or the one the current occupant is fighting for to, to make it. And this you know, you can't see the, the quotes around, but make America great again. Right. Do you want to be in the make America great again, America, or the one that John Lewis fought and bled for um, and continued to fight, fight for, in 30 plus years uh, in Congress. I think that was just, it was striking because we, we don't hear from him hardly enough, right? And then he comes out in this moment and just connects the dots and, and basically it was a call to action.
0: Now, I wanna talk about this current moment as you just alluded to this year of 2020, this year of uh, a pandemic with the COVID-19 crisis, the year of uh, George Floyd, uh, and the the tragic murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis PD that led to the largest uh, social protests, social justice movements in American history. Over 4,700 separate protests, seven to twenty six million self identified participants in protests. We've never seen anything like this. Um, you know, you've been a journalist for a long time. You've covered Ferguson. You've covered BLM. You've covered elections. Uh, well, tell me as a journalist as somebody who does this for a living your vocation what do you make of this it, we're, we're only 7 months into the year but have you have you ever seen anything like this read about anything like this I, mean, I think we're all still in a s- state of of shock about everything shelter in place but what do you make of of this year
1: you know i think this is Um, The confluence of things. Right. And this intersection, all the layers and every, you know, every moment there is another thing to pile on top. And I think that is why we actually saw the response to George Floyd's death that we hadn't seen um, in the wake of other tragic killings by law enforcement, especially. Um, But I've certainly never seen anything like this. I mean, let's not forget that um, we were going through an impeachment right just how many how many months ago right like 5 months 4 months i don't even know it seems like a lifetime ago whenever it was uh but from um impeachment and even going back further i think and this wasn't necessarily um you know one of the 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 more toxic things to come about in recent history but you think about coming off of 1619 and the year of return and the year of like reminding ourselves of who we all are, right? Who we are as the descendants of enslaved people and who America has been in, in that machine that was just uh, devouring our bodies and had been devouring our bodies physically, um, spiritually, um, legislatively the, the entire time. Right. And so we're, we're, we're thinking about these things and wrestling with these things. And then you have the political unrest and the impeachment and the Russia stuff and all the incendiary remarks coming down from the white house and all the racism and all the, the rise in hate crimes. Right. You have, um you know, white supremacists gunning down Jews in, inside their places of worship. You have all kinds of wild stuff happening. And then COVID-19 and the sickness spreads and the sickness of our politics are also spreading and the lies and the, you know, the misinformation and disinformation and the waves of all that. Then um, Ahmad Arbery is killed by two white vigilantes. Then Breonna Taylor is gunned down after the police kicked down her door. Meanwhile, the dude they were looking for was already in custody. And they charged her boyfriend <laughs> when he went to defend, defend um, you know, Breonna and himself. They initially charge him. And then to watch the last minutes of George Floyd's life. I think, you know, the the, the the convulsing of America in that moment uh, was because of all that we've been through. And it's hard to even put into words because even before this, just covering the politics of the day, there were fires around every corner, right? Like, where do we even begin with the, the, the presidency of the United States right now, right? And the politics surrounding it and all that stuff. And then here we are. I mean, I, I don't know, what normal even looks like anymore, right? Can we imagine a future that is clear of scandal, with clear of violence? Um, even though there are glimmers um, that, that uh, of hope that there is some progress being made on the like law enforcement front, and there's some policy and the NBA started again. You see Black Lives Matter on the court and the names on the back. I think this is all of that would have been unthinkable because we're in this like kind of upside down world now. Um, but I don't see. I don't even know how do we see our way out of this. <laughs> like, what is what does the normal look like?
0: You contributed to the 1619 project, and that project uh, was conceived by the Pulitzer Prize winner and MacArthur Genius uh, Award winning journalist, Nicole Hannah-Jones. And I want us to talk about 1619 as a segue um, and then move forward into BLM, because that project was so radical, but has received the Pulitzer Prize and radical in the sense of wanting to speak truth to power about American history, racial slavery, and how racial slavery produced a caste system that impacts us all now, whether it comes to healthcare, law enforcement, residential and public school segregation, um, real estate, just the whole, the whole panorama. Um, so talk to me about that project because that project has both been in, embraced by not just progressives, but the mainstream. But then you had one senator try to introduce legislation a senator to prevent that project from being taught who said that slavery was a, a necessary evil. Talk to me about that because I think that 1619 and what journalists, black journalists like Nicole Hannah Jones, like yourself, uh, obviously Coates and others, have been so important to this moment. But in 2020, it, it's almost reaching this apex of, of utilizing journalism, utilizing their talents and their skills. Um, in a very transformative way for this pedagogical intervention that's not partisan, but that's deeply meditative, that's investigative, but that also has a moral urgency, what Dr. King called the fierce urgency of now.
1: You know, you mentioned <clears throat> the bill introduced by Senator Tom Cotton that would uh, defund school districts that um, proposed to teach the 1619 Project. and And I read through the bill and it's like section A, number three, it's like it says something about um, slavery not being a founding ideal of this country. Now, there's a lot of wrestling and a lot of perspective and a lot of vantage points you can view history. Um, but to take that step to say that slavery was not a founding ideal. Now, again, there has been debate whether the Revolutionary War was in part fought to, to maintain slavery and all and all of that. But it's it's almost laughable. But it's amazing that from the highest Uh, you know, seats in Congress to the White House, 1619 Project has reached their doorstep and it has infuriated them. And I think in part because it brings into clarity and stark relief that there has been a continuum from 1619 when the first enslaved Africans uh, were dragged to the shores of what would become America through, you know, enslavement and reconstruction, then the backlash of redemption and through the civil rights era still now, right? It has shaped every aspect of our life in America. Every institution has been touched by the enslavement. The great wealth that this country enjoys, um, as you well know, and many of your listeners will know, um, derived in no small part, in fact, in large part, uh, due to the the forced labor camps and the stripping after that of, of Black wealth. And to be part of that project, um, it has made me proud as a journalist. It's made me um, even more proud as a Black journalist because so many of us walk in the footsteps of uh, great figures like Ida B. Wells. And you think about, um, the, the era of great lynching and the bloodshed and that this woman, this journalist, this black woman, this black journalist, uh, went out there and shone a light down in the darkest of dark places, um, fearlessly, right. Knowing that, uh, you know, her work could get her killed or get other people killed. She pushed forward. And I think when, when Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, approached me to do it. At first, I said, "Nah." I said, "It's going to be so much work, and I don't have time." And it's something that has to be done right. <laughs> like, and I, I really want to give it justice. And she looked at me and said, "Trust me. If you don't, if you don't do this, you're you're going to regret it, right?" And we need to do this right. And like, come on, man, stop playing. <laughs> Let's go. And I, I looked in her eyes and I believed her because um, Nicole Hannah Jones is a genius, and she also is fearless. And, you know, when she, when she tells you something, you got to listen. And so to take part in that was amazing, but I think it was, it was important. And I think one of the most important aspects of this, which has been the source of the, of the most controversy is that Nicole in her opening piece, which she connects back to her father and his um, service in the military and his um, pride in a flag in a country that never showed any much pride in him. It's that. America's true founding was not in 1776, but 1619. Um, not just because it created the foundation for the American economy and all the institutions, right, that we could we could talk about, um, but that it brought to this country um, the people whose descendants would push America um, to be the true democracy that it claimed it, it had been all along. When those um, so-called founding fathers were, were writing, you know, their, their great pieces of work, um, I think they could be called fiction in many ways, right? That all men were created equal and they owned people, right? The the, the hypocrisy of it, um, and that it took black people in America to push and fight. And we had never stopped pushing and fighting, right? We had pushing and fighting from the very beginning. And the idea that um, to many, this is a, a, a revelation, but that it's so attacked so many people's worldview Um, in the view of themselves, in the view of race in America, that the president has attacked 1619. You have a a legion of conservatives who have come out attacking this work. Uh, Meanwhile, it wins a Pulitzer, it's widely heralded. um, And I think it just, it, 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 it sits up there among the most important works of American journalism, period, I think. And I was having this conversation with someone the other day and they were like, There are a few pieces. You got the Pentagon Papers. You have a few other works of journalism. Mm -hmm. But I think this one changed the game.
0: No, I absolutely agree with you. I want to talk about uh, Black Lives Matter because I think BLM has done um, in popular discourse and political discourse what 1619 did. Uh, intellectually and pedagogically in terms of changing the game. I want to talk about BLM and sort of these Black women who have founded BLM. And what do we think now for this generation? Because like you said earlier in our conversation, we have John Lewis's Among Us and Diane Nash's Bernard Lafayette Among Us. And some of them are young, uh, Tamika Mallory and uh, Brittany Packnett and Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, Patrice khan Cullors. What do we make of one? Uh, one is to discuss Black Lives Matter in its historical context, how it first erupts in 2013 as the hashtag. And now, just seven years later, because of this year, the intersectional justice that BLM has talked about you have even corporate America rhetorically saying Black Lives Matter. And we're gonna parse through that. We're gonna parse through that. But tell me, what were your thoughts initially on BLM and, and how did you see them as a journalist when it when it erupts, especially by 2014, 15, after Michael Brown, after Eric Garner? What did you think this movement could or would accomplish? That's a that's a big one. I mean, I think in
1: the in the very beginning um, the the hashtag Black Lives Matter emerged after the the killing of Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida, uh, by George Zimmerman, you know, a wannabe cop who confronts Trayvon Martin, kills him. Who, who all he had was you know a bag of Skittles and an Arizona iced tea. And that case, um, you know, for many younger people, they you know that was at this point in 2012 now, so eight years ago. Um, that really was our Emmett Till, right? To see this young handsome, hopeful young man, um, black like us, um, gunned down by, um, you know, someone who stalked him. And law enforcement says, wait for law enforcement after you call 911, do not follow him, right? And then we we, we can't forget that um, not long after when President Obama was pushed to um, say something about the case and the death of, of Trayvon Martin, he said, if I had a son, he could have been Trayvon. And that was it. I think in part we get Donald Trump, not just because of the remarks that Donald Trump made. I mean, President Obama made about Donald Trump at the White House Correspondents Dinner, which many say that's the start of it all. Um, But when you had um, Barack Obama connecting explicitly to the black community and a young black man gunned down who conservatives and many white folks just viewed as a thug. um, We cannot understate the impact of Trayvon Martin's killing and then the acquittal of George Zimmerman in that case. Uh, that he walks free to this day is, is still <laughs> puzzling to say the least. Um, but for Black Lives Matter to co- emerge from that case, um, when we all saw so much of ourselves in Trayvon Martin, and they started to push in a way that we hadn't seen in generations, um, years earlier, I think in maybe 2005 or six, we had the case of the Jenna Six in Jenna, Louisiana, when a group of young black high school students were, you know, they beat up one of their white classmates. They were charged with attempted murder. And we saw this uh, mass mobilization. Right. And it was big then, but it was way down in, in Louisiana. Right. And it kind of it blew over. What we saw come out of Trayvon Martin was big. And to see Black Lives Matter emerge, they were organizing, they were disrupting. Um, You know, they were pushing the way that many of us just had never seen. Right.
0: And, Why do you think that is, Tremaine? Is that is that social media? Is it youth? What what, what What's the cause of that? Certainly black women were at the center of this. And they were talking about intersectional. There's a lot of Black queer feminists who are at the center of this, trans, uh, uh, gay Black men like Darnell Moore and others. Like what was what was happening at that moment? We know about the external pressures, but internally within the Black community, why did this movement erupt?
1: I think it was social media, right? We hadn't seen this kind of national organizing effort before, right? And it was as easy as a click away. Um, I think sadly in so many ways that Trayvon Martin... Um, was what you would call a, kind of a perfect victim. And I say that with all due respect, um, but he was just young and fresh faced. And he had uh, two parents committed to pushing for justice and you had uh, Ben Crump involved, right? So you had all the factors coming together and then social media, and then just struck the right moment in terms of the coalitions that you mentioned. Um I think it just popped differently. I, I think it just, I think in this day and age, it was... When you think about um, Emmett Till's photo and his mother Mamie and that open casket and we just saw so much of ourselves in Trayvon. And I think that was different. Um, and also you had black journalists, myself, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, a bunch of folks, Charles Blow, pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, I wrote something every single day for like three months, maybe like two and a half, literally. ta was using his platform at the Atlantic, Charles Blow in the New York Times, and a whole bunch of other, Yamisha Alcindor emerged as a young journalist pushing. Um, I think all those factors came together in a way that we had never seen before. But but to your question earlier, even then, everyone was saying, "But what what policy? What 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 is BLM pushing for?" Right? They're they're organizing. They're whatever. Then two years later, after Trayvon was killed, you had Mike Brown, and that's when you had the anger. With Trayvon, it was sadness, and at least someone was arrested, right? And even though the trial didn't go the way many folks hoped, um, there was some justice. Mike Brown his body out there baking in the sun for four hours, right? Very grassroots anger, actual legitimate anger. And then the organizing of BLM, harnessing some of that anger and that rage, right? And started making policy demands. Um, that still, it was still early though. Like what what are the possibilities? Because BLM still looked like to a lot of white folks as they do today, you know, it's nothing but, you know, looters, rioters, thugs, right? Mike Brown's a thug. That's all they had to say. He's a thug, 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 thug right? Um, and then we see where we are now. I think it's a shock that you had on the court of the <laughs> National Basketball Association, Black Lives Matter. I and even the, even the polling, and I, I don't have the latest polling, but I think it's either half or a slight majority of people who view uh, BLM positively. This is, you know, I think it would have been unthinkable. And so I think early on, it sounds great as an organizing tool, and the sisters who uh, created it. um, you know, should be applauded as as modern day heroes, right? Um, but I don't know if anyone expected this. Now, again, many will wonder, well, is it a protest if everybody cosigns, right? Is it a protest if they're letting you do it? If they, I saw a Sprite commercial yesterday during the, the NBA and it's like, this is kind of who we are. And it's like, I don't know, I'm not an activist, I'm just a journalist, so I'm just an observer. But um, I think there are a lot of people who might be skeptical and will really truly wonder well, what is next? You have the attention, you have buy-in from a lot of folks and a lot of people who you would never had buy-in from before, including a lot of white folks and suburban white folks and white women um, and some white dudes who are coming over, Um, but what next? And I think we'll see what's next.
0: Well, from that perspective, it's great to talk about, let's talk about some of the policies because I still want to shift back to 2013-14 because the BLM by 2016 comes out with a set of policy agendas, but within the Black freedom struggle, there were tensions, right? We have an older guard uh, that is from that heroic period of the civil rights movement, like Congressman Lewis, who embraced BLM, especially at the end of his life, but they were wondering what these young people were about. We have some people like Dr. William Barber, who's continuing on with Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign, who certainly has embraced that that political radicalism. But some of the young BLM activists were more connected um, and interested in, in uh, things like uh, uh, reparations and um, you know, no bail. You know, Khalif Browder, we saw what happened to Khalif Browder in New York City, uh, killed um, really by Rikers Island, even if they're saying it's death by suicide. Um, well, let's talk about the tensions within the civil rights community. Uh, And these are tensions I think that are still around today. Some of this has been papered over by the success of BLM and everybody's sort of hopping on that bandwagon. But there was some criticism by an older church-bound generation that initially looked at what BLM was doing with the disruptive nonviolent civil disobedience, shutting down highways in Washington, D.C. I was in Boston when they shut down the highway in Boston. Major highways, Miami, Washington, throughout the United States. Let's talk about those tensions. Why, why would there be an older guard, including some Black elected officials, who didn't necessarily come out in support of BLM when it wasn't popular, when it was, let's say, in quotes, misunderstood by white folks and by racists, whether they're active or passive racists, saying that this is about uh, disrespecting our police, saying all lives matter, blue lives matter. Colin Kaepernick is uh, Exhibit A of somebody who was castigated for kneeling in peaceful protest in support of BLM and also in defiance against racial injustice. So let's talk about that even within the Black movement. Why was there at times a disconnect between BLM and an older generation of civil rights activists?
1: There's a saying that I've heard um, a lot in recent years. And basically it's when people say, you know, back during slavery, I would have did this. Back during the civil rights era, I would have did, did this. You'd have been doing exactly what you're doing now. <laughs> right. So whatever you're doing now, you would have been doing then. And so let's think about, um, you know, the, the home going for John Lewis. And there was that moment when uh, former president Bill Clinton uh, goes to the, the lectern and he's you know, praising John Lewis, he was a friend and recounting what he had, um, you know, his life and saying, you know, long before he, the March in Washington and the Freedom Riders, well, after, after the Freedom, he joined the Freedom Riders, but he was the head of SNCC and he lost an election to uh, Stokely Carmichael, right? <laughs> and there's that moment when he says, and then, you know, the the for a while, the movement went more towards Stokely. And it almost as soon as I heard that, I was like, whoa. Is he from it as a negative thing? And he was, right? He's like, no, it's it's peace. It's nonviolence. It's what John Lewis represented, meaning uh, use violence to heap upon yourself to make an example of what this country is doing and treating black folks, right? And so when you think about um, during the civil rights era, and again, you know this more than most of us, right? There were those church folks said, no, 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 just slow and steady. Don't make any waves. Don't get yourself hurt, right? Some of it could have purely been out of like, they will kill you keep your head down and live to fight another day right and some also have been church folks and, 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 and that you know that set are very comfortable in the system because they they get to be close to the house right and I don't mean that in necessarily a pejorative way but they get to be close to the the, the economic interest they get to be close because they're safe they don't they don't pose any true disruption 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 to the actual system. those young folks though who are blockading streets, those young folks who are, um, you know, boycotting buses and boycotting businesses and and really putting pressure on the system, let alone those that followed a more, um, you know, militant doctrine that said, you know, if 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 you touch us, you take we'll take your arm off, right? <laughs> let alone that. Um, and so I think that tension has existed long before Black Lives Matter. But I saw that I remember in the first, and I was in Ferguson. Mike Brown was killed on Saturday, and I was in Ferguson on Monday morning um, because I'd actually been in Ferguson six months earlier, writing a piece about education, right? Um, and so I was familiar with, you know, a lot of the players on the ground. So I was like there immediately because I knew everyone. And I was like, I know this community, let me jump in there. And I remember that first week or the end of the second week when you had young folks just, I've never seen a more boutic group of activists than I saw in Ferguson in St. Louis, Missouri, right? To this day, they were <laughs> just shutting everything down. I don't know if you remember this, um, but they were breaking up brunches, right? They were having like <laughs> I
0: remember the brunch break and a lot of white people felt so, so put out. <laughs> exactly. Saying, I can't believe they broke up and they invaded my brunch. I can't brunch. believe it. I yeah. didn't get the extra holiday, holiday sauce yet.
1: Yeah. Like they were but they were shutting malls down. They were just so about it. And I remember um the NAACP at the time um it had a strong some strong young leaders strong young leadership. But I remember there was this big gathering in one of the um, arenas or civic centers, whereas the NAACP and church folks, you had the young, um, you know, young, more rebellious uh, protesters and activists. And I remember, I think it was a, a young brother named Tef Poe, who, who was a, um, an activist and, and a rapper, was basically grabbed the mic and said, well, where were y'all when we t- were we being t- tear gas? Where were y'all when we were shot by rubber bullets? Where were y'all when we were shutting it down? Where were y'all when we were demanding they value our lives, <laughs> right? They weren't in the street. And so that chasm that has always been there, um, was brought in stark relief as BLM was really, uh, you know, harnessing a lot of strength. And I think that, that, you know, again, it might exist purely because when you're older, you're a little more conservative and you're thinking safety and peace first, but it's, you know, it was clearly drawn,
0: now, when we think about where we're at today, I think that what's been remarkable to see with the BLM protests of 2020, and I'm here in Austin, Texas, is the aspect policy-wise of defund the police, prison abolition. Um, what do we to make of that? And when activists say defund the police, they're using it as a phrase to talk about a new abolition movement that will invest in poor Black communities and communities of color and divest from institutions that punish and imprison and incarcerate and arrest and brutalize uh, black uh, children, black women, black men, black families. So this idea, and we've seen, uh, the mayor of New York City announced that one billion dollars of the police budget was going to be taken out and reinvested in communities in New York City that are are disadvantaged. Uh, in LA, one hundred fifty million. In Austin, a much smaller amount. But what are we to make of that? As a, when we think about what's next, the policy agenda in this year of twenty twenty. Obviously, at the federal level, uh, Joe Biden, who is the uh, uh, you know, presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party, convention still has not happened yet, um, has talked about more money for training, which many BLM activists uh, rejected and repudiated as tone deaf. But at the local level, we've really seen one aspect of the policy changes that BLM activists have been talking about for years really manifest itself in the BLM 2.0 moment. I think
1: the the messaging is, is so important here. And I think there are a lot of people who um, are taking advantage of the access to information and access to people who are so eloquent on these issues, right? Social media and otherwise. um, Because in the beginning, defund the police, you know, it, it's scaring folks, yes, right? It's yes. like, that means you're getting rid of police. Who do you call? And I think what's been <clears throat> very interesting is hearing those who are um, police abolitionists or just believe that it's um, police departments have become so bloated and swollen with taxpayer dollars um, that they're almost they're not beholden to anyone or anything. And to be able to flip that and say, one, it's a waste of money if they're killing people for allegedly having a fake, you know, counterfeit $20 bill, as in the case of George Floyd or gunning down a Tamir Rice. Right. We can say we Ultimately, if we were to provide the resources to communities that are most marginalized, most vulnerable, then you won't need the police, right because it's not like the the people who are being uh, ground up in the system are all violent criminals, right? People are hungry, people are um, addicted, people are traumatized, right So why not redirect that money on the front end and you won't need the police right And they'll say, and again, I think this has been such an important part of the messaging around this is saying that police don't you know stop criminal activity. they're just punitive. It's after it happened. Right. And so I think by drawing those distinctions, uh, but also um, I think people have because of this, people have come out of the woodwork and you're forced to choose sides now. Right. So are you going to be on the side of um, those? And again, this is a nonpartisan comment. um, Some of those despicable police unions. Those police unions are bad, bad, bad news, right? they stymie progress. They, they ha- release some of the most incendiary uh, rhetoric all across the country, um, who still, they have an interest in making sure the status quo is maintained. Um, but when you think about, we talk about that divide between BLM and the church, you think about what it means to be a progressive. And when you think about a Joe Biden now, who many folks are pointing at saying, no, no, he's never been a progressive. Right. He's aligned himself a certain way because he wants to win this election, but he's never really been a progressive. And some people point to this and say, look, he still (laughs) supports, you know, he's still supporting uh, this institution that has uh, done little but wreak havoc and violence in our communities. Um, uh, But I think that this is one of the biggest ones, like just like the embrace of BLM generally, uh, the idea that uh, the idea of defund the police is actually spreading. Um, but then again, there are some actual abolitionists who who really do believe, though, because some have corrected, say, no, it doesn't mean get rid of the police; it means redirect funding. Some people are saying, no, I actually mean
0: <laughs> get rid of the police. Well, certainly, but, certainly, Angela Davis is a prison abolitionist who believes mm-hmm. that prisons should be, um, we shouldn't have prisons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, the defund the police. I, I, it's interesting. I haven't, I haven't heard, I haven't seen the the abolish complete police <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, as, as a definition of defund the police. But I, 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 was, I
1: was talking to someone who said, no, ultimately, like, this is just the first step, right? This, this is, no, 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 you start redirecting resources. And, but then she, but she also framed it in a way, the woman I was talking to, in a way that you won't need them. Mm. So yes, we want to get rid of them because hopefully we get to a point where we just don't need them because our communities are healthy and people, uh, we minimize the trauma, and we heal the wounds, and we grow, right? And we become the kind of society, and it's a throwback to John Lewis, a real beloved community, right? Mm-hmm. A beloved American kind of thing, where we get to the point where you don't send uh, men and women with guns to respond to someone in the, in the midst of a psychotic breakdown, right? You, you don't send people with guns to, to respond to, you know, whatever it is.
0: Now you talked earlier about the MBA and Black Lives Matter and what they just did. Everybody taking the knee. Football, uh, baseball players have done the same thing. Uh, the commissioner of football, right after George Floyd, said that Black Lives Matter. After Patrick Mahomes and some of the biggest players did a video that said Black Lives Matter, and they could have been Brianna Taylor and Ahmad Arbery. What do you? What are we to make of um, this kind of cultural moment where NASCAR? publicly or at least repudiates the Confederate flag. We've seen all these monuments and citadels of white supremacy at times literally come tumbling down, right? But we've also seen this lead to real showdowns. Uh, the latest is in Portland, where federal homeland security agents, a lot of them masked with no ID, have been used to uh, protect uh, courthouses, protect private par- property, but physically brutalize protesters and harass protesters. And we've seen throughout this BLM moment, at times uh, police, especially in Buffalo, where they pushed this elderly man and cracked his skull, we've seen huge state-sanctioned violence against uh, demonstrators. So what are we, what are we to make of that? Because I think by the time we try to clear the wreckage and the triumphs of this year, so much has to be disentangled, but I think so much will be forgotten except by the reporters, the historians, the people who are doing this and cataloging this. but i I think the the violence that we continue to witness is easily one of the striking things that uh, I've observed
1: i think I think we get here because of that violence. and because when you look out at some of these crowds and you think Portland, which has a long history of both white supremacy but also um you know, really aggressive protesting, um peaceful and non-peaceful, right. Um, But I think because of that violence being heaped on a lot of a lot of white people who've joined the marches, I think people are seeing it a little differently than if it's just you know some black folks who who are mourning a thug and come out to break stuff, right? And that's their image of it, right? it's, It's aimless anger. But when you see some of the crowd saying, "No, no, 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 this isn't right, right? And this isn't who we should be," and and then they're met with some just a taste of the police violence that black folks get every single day in America in one form or another, I think that matters. I also think, though, and this is a a smaller wrinkle that hasn't been discussed much. I think it's easy to do, and you have cover when there's no crowd, right? There, there, there's nobody in the baseball stadium is going to be booing you when your skipper takes a knee, right? And baseball, especially, I think, has been NASCAR is NASCAR, right? That's pure and explicit, but baseball is America's, you know, traditional sport, and so to see. Um, you know, teams and the coaches, skippers taking a knee, I think that is a step. And I think what, where they've struggled, um, unlike with basketball, especially, and even with football, is that you have very few Black American players. What you have is Black folks from the Caribbean. And so I think that cultural pressure that you have in other spaces, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing management in the front, front office, um, I don't think you get that in baseball. Um, But I think in this moment where there is wide consensus that something is wrong and you have, I'm sure, many of their nieces and nephews, sons and daughters, grandchildren out there pushing and being educated in ways, because now think about, um, I haven't checked the bestsellers list in a a few days, when you think about uh, the works (laughs) <laughs> that have risen to the top. Yes. Folks are hungry. Yes. How to be an anti-racist and stand from the beginning and all the, the stuff. And you know, and, and your book is out there doing really well, right? So it's like people are hungry for this information, and it's okay to to want to inquire. It's okay to like rethink some things. And I think that's where you're in a space now, where again they have cover now, right? Because the consensus. And I think what's also interesting watching, um, you know, the first NBA game, um, and that there are a lot of people who would never be exposed. To any of this messaging um, in any other way, except for when they turn, because they'll watch, you know, brothers jump high, run fast, you know, shoot, catch, all that stuff. Um, but it's been it had been sanitized for so long, even in the NBA, which is it, it seems to be more progressive than you know what we see the plantation system of football. Um, but to see Black Lives Matter on the court and the messaging on the backs of their jerseys, I think it is actually a promising step. They say, you know what, we're going to normalize this messaging. Normalize these ideas, normalize the iconography, iconography, right? Um you know it's 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 surprising in some ways, but I think it's um it also is is that once brave, but then it's also once you have you know Malcolm X on a stamp. Isn't it the same thing? Because y'all ain't love Malcolm X, right?
0: No, they did not at all. Okay, the elections. how does race and you're doing a whole series of specials on this for MSNBC, but The election is a few months away, the election of 2020, November 3rd. How does race, the pandemic, not gonna ask you for a prediction, but how is this gonna play out in terms of, we know that there's voter suppression. Uh, President Obama just discussed it at John Lewis's funeral. Um, How is this gonna play out when you've got a sitting president who says mailing balloting is no good, absentee balloting is good, mailing ba- mail in ballots even though he's voted through mail but how's this going to work out just for the country with really the most important generation the most important election of, of in multiple generations uh in american and world history uh, what's how's race going to going to figure into this
1: um where's it not going to figure in right um and even like it's like where do we begin i mean i think it was just um yesterday uh, or, or two days ago where uh, president Trump in his message when he repealed some you know fair housing uh policy uh, you know you good folks living the dream out there in the suburbs don't worry about low-income housing <laughs> thank me later you know as a matter of fact thank me now you're welcome he literally said I think he said you're welcome I think um and we know that's not even a dog whistle that's a human whistle he means black people he means people of color right that's what he means um when you think about the the idea of uh, oh he also said why don't maybe we should Think about postponing the election. Yes. Well, like wait, wait, wait. Fortunately, <laughs> so he, doesn't about... do Fortunately he doesn't have the authority to do so. Fortunately, he doesn't have the authority. But then we think about uh the voter suppression and how that is manifested in places like Atlanta, Georgia, when you have people waiting in line to exercise their right to vote, standing in rain for hours. You think about some of these spaces that even before COVID-19 kind of shrunk um, the, the number of, of polling places in many communities, you already had... A local uh, state secretary of state's already um, stripping them in predominantly black and brown and poor and more vulnerable communities, already erecting these barriers. And then you have the threat of COVID-19, which has disproportionately impacted um, black and brown people, especially, right? Um, you have the, the messaging from the top. Uh, it's, I, I don't even know where to begin, but then you also have, and this is one aspect that we should be looking looking into a little bit more, is how has this moment of racial reckoning and the protests following George Floyd and all the push and all the corporate push and all the normalizing the idea that black life matters, how will that impact um, the election? Right We already see uh, Donald Trump's polling numbers slipping. And we also know that anytime there is progress, especially racial progress, there is that great backlash. And so here we are with uh, Donald Trump hunkering down with his human whistles, right? All he has is the flares for the culture War saying, "It's now or never. I need you." right? Our backs against the wall here. And how many other folks will come out saying like, you know what, they, they'll hear the words of President Obama and say that we want to live in, um, you know, a world that is is still being shaped by the the spirit of George Wallace or a hopeful one that lives in the spirit of John Lewis, right? I, I think that's where we are now. It will be interesting to see, but America is America, right? <laughs> if anything is true, we have a track record here. Um, So I'm not sure how it will turn out, but it's, it's, the stakes are even higher. Um, but the, the, the confluence of COVID-19, George Floyd, the president being the president, um, the attack on democracy, the the voter suppression efforts that have been going on for so long at this point, we're talking about, uh, about 13 years now, because they started slightly before with the voter ID stuff and Chris Kobach, you know, r- the architect of so many of these state laws restricting um, the voter ID laws and the gerrymandering um, then you know, ramped up during the Obama era, and then here we are with this president.
0: <sighs> That's a lot, <laughs> that Tremaine. A lot. Tremaine, you're so passionate about what you do. What inspired you to become a journalist?
1: Um, I, I really do believe um, that I was called by the spirit of, of the Ida B. Wells of our world, and I think it's the injustices. Um, and I can remember um, sitting on the sofa with my mother, and I might have been seven or eight, and watching the Philadelphia Police Department bomb Osage Avenue in Philly, um, the MOVE bombing. And I remember seeing uh, little black children running naked from the flames. And I remember watching Mississippi Burning with my mother. And I remember the books that she would give me. And I just remember seeing um, this world at once attacking us at every turn but us rising and telling our story and pushing and fighting every step of the way. And I knew I wanted to, from an early age, tell our stories. Um, Cause I always felt like I was a storyteller and a writer. And the longer I've been doing this, I, I continue to grab skills and I continue to be curious about um, the world and the way we live and the way we die and the differences in the way we live and die. And the same way um, Ida B. Wells shown that light in that dark space in those dark spaces, that's what I try to do. And I think I'm at once um, burdened by a deep sadness in so many of our experiences here. And while some people can pretend that there, there was some break in the continuum, I see clearly the way we live now is directly connected to our enslavement and directly um, connected to our second class citizenship and directly connected to the disenfranchisement and criminalization of our very bodies. There is no disconnect, right? And so I'm I'm just pushed, pushed to tell these stories. Also, I want, when the historians look back and the aliens come down and they're (laughs) trying to figure out who we were, I wanna make sure that my hand is on that because we have to tell our stories and not just our stories, the American story from our perspective, because we too are Americans. You know, for I think when I was younger, I wrestled with that idea of, um, of patriotism or not and uh, how we've been treated. But then I think Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, you know, articulated so clearly in her opening essay for C19 that we are among the truest of Americans because we shaped this democracy. We forced it to be its better self every step of the way and continue to do that. And so I think there is some pride in that. Um, so that's the, that's the, that's the, <laughs> the nutshell. You got me fired up now, man. You got me fired up. But
0: my, my, uh, my final question is, um, do you feel hope? How do, what do you feel about this time? The year is not over, but, uh, you've been one of the signal, um, uh, reporters and journalists and investigators and public speakers, um, chronicling what's happening, uh, to our nation and our world. Uh, this year and it's a year of so much um, sadness uh, and tragedy, but also so much joy and beauty simultaneously. So it's transformative year. W- what do you feel? Yeah.
1: You know, I, I, I feel mostly, um, I think hopeful is, is probably the best word. I have a small slice of cynicism in me because I see the forces at work. And I think the the, the best way to, to foresee the future is to look at the past. Right, because that will give us an indication of where we're going. And so sometimes that's scary, right? Um, But then when I see people, especially in this moment, standing up for what they believe in, um, and I think I see people willing to challenge their own belief systems, right? Um, And trying to actively and actually wrestle with who we are as Americans, that is very hopeful protest is hopeful because that means people want change and it's such a part of the American tradition and the black American tradition. Um, I, I I do feel pretty hopeful. I believe that we will get through this and I believe we will be different. Um, I'm hoping, um, that we will be stronger and that we are closer to that ideal, um, that so many folks like John Lewis, um, fought and bled for. So I, I feel, I feel pretty good. And, and we have, Um, you know, spaces to tell these stories and having this conversation, right? We're in a moment now where we can have this conversation and we can openly and honestly talk about um, white supremacy and violence and, you know, the the caste system and the history and where we've been and where we're going. And as two black people having this conversation, talk about hope and pain and the burdens of the trauma that we've inherited. This is, this is, a this is, it's an amazing time, man.
0: We're going to leave it right there. Thank you. That's a, a great way to end our conversation with uh, Tremaine Lee, uh, who's really uh, one of the most important journalists. Uh, working in the United States of America right now. He's an MSNBC correspondent. He's the host of the podcast Into America. He's a Pulitzer Prize and Emmy Award winning journalist um, who also has a special MSNBC series, The Race Report, that explores the intersection between race and politics. And he is part of the New York Times Magazine's Pulitzer Prize winning 1619 project, Uh, which has earned numerous well-deserved awards and is a game changer for how we understand racial slavery from 1619 all the way to the present and the way in which it's shaping all of our lives. So Tremaine Lee, truly, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for this conversation.
1: My brother, thank you. You are one of the the, the smartest people in America and it's an honor for me to be on your show. So (laughs) thank you, brother. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph, that's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H, and our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu, and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.